the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, Welcome and glad you're here. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. I'm a little somber. I'm a little somber today. I'm a little somber. I'm going to probably get a little bit angry in a few moments. Um, It's a bad day. Uh, It's a bad day. And uh, and I'm not even talking about the Rittenhouse debacle, Uh, that lawsuit, that uh, 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 incredible uh, disaster of a trial, a prosecution. That's not even what I want to talk about. I don't even want to mention it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that um, we have political prisoners who are being sentenced to hard jail time based, as far as I can tell, on being on the wrong side of an argument and looking like a a crazy man. I mean, it used to be if you look like a crazy man, you might get a break. Um, But in this case, uh, one of the January 6th, so-called insurrectionist who was not charged with insurrection because what he did was talk to the cops, walk into the Capitol, end up in the house chamber, sit in Pelosi's seat, but came in dressed with a horns and a, and a fur, the so-called shaman that, that the weirdo shaman guy, he got 41 months in jail. He got, he got three and a half, just under three and a half years in jail for walking in the building. I mean, you could do a lot of things. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come to this. Let me just, let me just stop for a second and just say, uh, we're going to have, we got some great interviews today. A very interesting interview. Uh, Joseph Ellis, who I've been looking forward to, a, 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 um, a, a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And he's got a, a new book uh, out that is uh, really interesting. And so we'll talk with him. It's called The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents. Uh, we'll talk with him. We will also talk with our friend Conrad Black. He wrote the best piece. He's written the best piece on where we are in this great country. Uh, and we had to talk to him. I, I texted him late last night. I said, I need to get you on. He, he, he wrote, the headline is, it's American Greatness is where it's published. Trump is necessary to restore the two-party rule. And it's phenomenal. So we'll talk with those two coming up in a moment. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily email. Uh, listen to the great segments over there and find out what you need to know, the daily wink. All right, today, what you need to know, we got a big problem in this country, in this nation. Um, the man who, the, the so-called QAnon shaman, the QAnon shaman, that's what he's called, you know, is his nickname done by the press who has to get coverage of all these things. The QAnon shaman was sentenced today. His, his real name is Jacob Chansley. And he was sentenced to 41 months in prison. The prosecutors called him, quote, the public face of the Capitol riot. He was wearing horns, face paint, and holding a flagpole. His prison sentence, it it describes, and one of these things, Reuters, I think, says, 
is the longest among the 675 riot prosecutions to date. First of all, it's interesting that the media is now not calling it an insurrection because it's not. They're calling it a riot, which is closer to that. But what's crazy about this situation, it's not crazy. What's outrageous about it, what is so far beyond the pale is you can do almost anything in this country and not get 41 months in prison. And, and this guy, he, um, he certainly looked like a character. There's no doubt about it, but he, he did nothing dramatically that would put you in a position where you'd say, Oh, we got to put him in 41 months behind bars. He's already been in solitary confinement for more than six months. If you go over to American Greatness, amgreatness.com, you go to American Greatness, Julie Kelly's got a piece up within minutes of this sentencing. She was listening, and she's the best at it. She describes it. But this guy's 34 years old. He pled guilty to one count of obstruction of an official proceeding. Now, I, I, take, I take that back, by the way. That's a felony, technically. Um, so it's a felony, obstructing an official proceeding it's you say say what well i mean you know what does that mean but he's been in solitary confinement for almost the entire 317 days he's been in jail he turned himself in a few days after uh the january 6th the prosecutors admitted in the open in open court he didn't destroy any property he didn't assault a police officer he walked through an open door on the east side of the Capitol. He spoke with Capitol Police, who told this guy, Jacob Chansley, we're not against you. You need to show us no attacking, no assault, remain calm. The prosecutor said Chansley's vitriolic messages posted on social media before January 6th were a call to battle. And he said Chansley left a chilling note for Mike Pence. Now, I don't know how you get to the point, by the way, that um, you are penalized for messages beforehand, a call to battle, but you weren't charged with that. He wasn't charged with conspiracy. He wasn't charged with, I mean, it's not, it's not a crime to say things beforehand. It's the, the, the judge, as he sentenced him, said, you know, this is, the, this is what we have to do because the judge said what you did was horrific. And he said, Chansley made himself the epitome of what happened on January 6th. So he's being penalized, I think, for standing out in a crowd, right? He's being penalized for having the, 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 either the best or the worst fashion sense. If you, if you wanted to stand out, he had the best fashion sense. The pictures are everywhere. If you wanted to not get sentenced as the poster child, literally the poster man, poster boy for this, you made a mistake painting your face. But doesn't he look either like a kid? I know he's 34, like a kid doing stupid stuff like going to a football game or like someone who's not mentally well. Now, his lawyer didn't claim any of those things. I mean, one of the things that upsets me about this is that we don't really know. I mean, he, he did plead guilty to it. But you also would think that if you're pleading guilty, you know, a, a more reasonable idea, a re reasonable notion, a reasonable expectation is you plead guilty because you're going to get a break. You're, you're taking responsibility. You're realizing that you trespassed, whatever it is. I mean, at this point, 
You can be Hillary Clinton and break the law. You can be Hunter Biden. And I guess I don't know if he broke a law, but he made a mess of things. You can be all kinds of Eric Holder and being contempt of Congress. You can make a list of people who have have done things. You can be John Brennan and and, and, uh, James Clapper. And you can you can at least I don't know if he broke the law, but he lied to Congress. You can be Strzok and Page and Comey and McCabe and all these people. And you can you can be above the law. But if you're some 34-year-old dude who puts on a dumb hat and wears a fur and goes in, he talked to the cops on the way in. He didn't push or hit anybody. And you're going to get 41 months, three years and five months in jail. What th- th- This can only be called, well, it could be called lots of things. You can call it anything. What I would say is the, uh, the only thing I can call this is a political persecution. And the real danger here is the way the system works is he will become the one that can be pointed to to sentence other people, to sentence other, other people who trespassed or did something. And do you understand that if you're Hillary Clinton, you can afford 50 lawyers to make sure that you don't get prosecuted for destroying property. But if you're Jacob Chansley, you can't afford, you know, 50 hours of the lawyers Hillary Clinton had. And as someone said about this, this is, this is political persecution. That's true. It's also class warfare. Because if you were wealthy, you would find, you'd lawyer up and out of this. But if you're a regular person, and don't have the money to lawyer up and out of it, you're going down for 41 months. There's nothing about this that is justice. There's nothing about it that strikes me as justice. And I, by the way, I don't even know the details. But may, I, I, what I'm seeing described in the prosecutor's comments in the sentencing is that there was no violence. Jacob Chansley was not accused of violence. I, I, I mean, I don't know all everything he did. I didn't know for sure, but according to the prosecutor, he did not do violence and he didn't do violence against a cop. He didn't break property. He didn't destroy property. He didn't steal anything. So he, he didn't do, I, I didn't know that for sure. You know, if there was some, if he was pleading guilty to one count because they could have charged him with, you know, destroying the podium and stealing a laptop and pushing a cop and, and hitting somebody over the head with a, his flagpole. But they said in the sentencing he didn't do that so he and they said he talked to the cops on the way in so what we have is a guy sentenced to real and hard time why because they wanted to make an example of him in the media in the in the in the and and in the in the nation and and frankly for all the wrong reasons remember all the people that burned up cars and, and rioted when Trump was inaugurated, not a single one was charged. All those charges were let. And I, I'm not complaining about that. I, I mean, I guess I should. Maybe I should. But when you want to force the narrative on the American people that January 6th was a big deal, when it was a, a riot, I guess, a, a protest out of control, sure. A bunch of people doing the wrong things, yeah. Wasn't an insurrection. Wasn't an armed conspiracy to take over. It wasn't any of that. But if you have to justify your existence and, and then justify the narrative, you do it any way you can. And sentencing some guy, some poor guy, to three and a half years in federal prison, it's a kind of class warfare 
and a political persecution that is far beneath the American system. It should cause every one of us to do some serious soul searching about where we are in this country when that's what happens. It's absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. All right, we got to take a break. We come back, we got a lot more. Zed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com. I'll put that story of um, uh, Julie Kelly up on social media, at Julie underscore Kelly, too, if you're on Twitter. Be right back. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our old friend Conrad Black, excuse me, Conrad Black, Lord Conrad Black, of course, a, a businessman for many decades, also a publisher in, in, in Britain as well as in Australia and America and Jerusalem. Extraordinary career. And also, of course, has written uh, biographies of Nixon, uh, FDR, and a book on Donald Trump, a president like no other. Uh, welcome back, Lord Black. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks, Ed. How are you today? So, I'm great. I'm great. I, your piece, and I, I, got, I got in touch with you yesterday because I read your piece in American Greatness, and I thought it was really important. In fact, let me tell the truth. I got it sent to me by a friend of mine and said, uh, Conrad Black nails it. A um, couple days ago, American Greatness, and the title of the, uh, the piece is Trump is Necessary to Restore Two-Party Rule. I think, Lord Black, the, the thing about this that's so uh, convincing is you know all these players. You're talking about George Will, Peggy Noonan. You've been sort of a, a contemporary of them for a couple of decades or more, really. And you're describing what they hoped this would all mean and what it really means. Walk us through your sort of thrust of your piece. Yeah, well, I, I have known both of them for a long time, 40 years in the case of George Will, uh, and then about 25 with Peggy. And, and they're fine people and distinguished writers. Uh, but the the event that uh, prompted the piece that you kindly commented on was George Will's column in the Washington Post last week in which he said that uh, the the minders and the entourage of President Biden should keep him in a tighter cocoon to prevent <laughs> uh, gaffes and, and mistakes or even untruths from, from uh, getting into the public domain because Otherwise, it might um, enhance the possibility of President Trump being reelected, which would defer the return of the two-party system. And my own view, which I put out, was in the first place, uh, the, any tighter constraints on President Biden, and no one would see or hear anything of him at all, which <laughs> right. so, some, some might not regret that, but that's not how the president of the U.S. is supposed to function. He's supposed to be reasonably accessible and, and comprehensible and enable people to form an opinion of him. Uh, but more to the point, I said that uh, I thought that there was essentially not a one-party system. I'm sorry, not a two-party system between Reagan and Trump, that that the McCain, Bush, Romney Republicans were essentially lookalike Democrats. And while the White House and the Congress changed hands, uh, we basically got a steady drift to the left and very little difference between the parties. Uh, and uh, that Trump had had put up an alternative and reversed course, and he was the person who revived the two-party system, and I thought George Will got that wrong. So that was the point I was making. 
And you know, in the in the and we're talking with Lord Conrad Black, and uh, a couple of paragraphs into it, you wrote you wrote this. Trump reversed this trend. So you're talking about the trend that sort of uh, both parties were in charge, and they were just kind of uh, uh, you know appeasing China, and uh, jobs were leaving, the border was wide open. And you rewrote this. Trump reversed this trend. He practically ended illegal immigration, unemployment, oil imports, disadvan- disadvantageous trade agreements, the appeasement of China, and an economic definition of globalism that exported capital and jobs and imported unemployment. And then you went on, and but um, but at the end you say a majority of Americans approved of these policies, and it was generally recognized that Trump would be reelect, reelected until China unleashed COVID nineteen onto the world. Um, I guess do you is that right? I, I say it too. I say, look, if you if you stop before COVID hits, I don't know anybody that could beat Trump. The, the numbers were too good. The economy's too strong. Things are too. Can we and say that now? In your there. estimation. Yeah. No, yeah. The poll showed it. I mean, you're right after that first phony impeachment effort. And just before COVID came down, uh, the you know, the polls on who do you expect to vote for gave Trump the lead. Yeah. And and so here's what I wonder. Right now, uh, there was a piece in Politico last week. And again, we're talking with Lord Conrad Black. His uh, piece is over to American Greatness. I'll put it on social media. There was a piece in Politico uh, about a week ago and it said, um, after Virginia's race for governor and the Republican won, uh, the lobbyists on K Street uh, came a calling and said to the Republicans in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate, forget about our being upset over January 6th. Remember that for about a month or two, they said, we'll never give to Republicans again, never to Holly, never to Cruz, never to these people. They said, forget about that. We're ready to give again. And uh, my uh, estimation is right now, uh, the as you described, the sort of uniparty is happy to let a m- more moderate sounding republic. I mean, let the Republicans have the House and Senate with a Democrat president and we'll go back to the same description you gave of, of you know, we'll we'll get along with we'll appease China. We won't worry too much about the border. In fact, we'll probably pass an amnesty of some kind for workers and all that. Is that doesn't that seem like that's almost inevitable? That's the path we're on. I, I don't think so. I think that's what the Democrats would like to do. But I, I, I think right. the erosion of public confidence in this administration and this Congress is so great that they don't have any bargaining power to, to, to hold the line in such a position. Uh, they're going to get absolutely bombed next year uh, in the midterms. And at that point, you've got a Democratic White House, that, which is uh, really tanked out in the polls and doesn't have much moral authority or political capital. But can at least resist the uh, can can probably exercise a veto where where it wants to when the Republicans try and legislate, but they're just sleepwalking towards the slaughterhouse because uh, in three years I think you'll get a, a a decisive statement by the American electorate that they want to go back. It won't be couched in quite this way, but to Trump's policies, they want a border. They 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 want uh, not to be uh, an energy dependent country, uh, dependent on countries that frequently don't wish America well, and they want an economic policy that seriously creates jobs and controls inflation, and uh, and is based on incentivization in the tax system. And uh, you know that's what they want. That's what they wanted before, but they got in the first place distracted by the Trump hate phenomenon and in the second place the the election was diddled i mean i don't know exactly and no one does but 45 million harvested ballots where 53,000 votes in three states would have flipped it to trump no one knows who won the election really 
Again, we're talking with uh, Lord Conrad Black about his piece over in American Greatness. Uh, you mentioned one of the paragraphs later on. While George Will was not a leader in promoting the monstrous falsehoods of the Trump-Russia collusion or an impeachable conversation with the president of Ukraine, U- Ukraine, he knew better. He saw Biden assist Teddy Kennedy in the crucifixion of Robert Bork, and he had some idea of what America would get with Biden. Um, first, before I get to that, the, the thrust of that, um, you you ran newspapers. You, you know, you're a publisher. You've written books, historical books. Has there ever been anything in American history like the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax in terms of the depth no. of the hoax and what it did to America? Uh, no. And in particular, I make the point that um, no major party nominee to the office of president in the history of the country, even ones with indifferent reputations like Aaron Burr, for example, no one who has ever been a serious candidate for president of the United States would ever, ever have cooperated with a foreign government to rig an American election. I I mean, whatever may be said of them, and there are a wide range of people from tremendous statesmen like Washington and Lincoln to to much more marginal people, but not one of them would have entertained anything so outrageous as colluding with a foreign government to rig an American presidential election. The whole concept is outrageous. But it's but it's almost flipped on its head. It was it looks like it was the the, the you know the British and slash Russian that that engineered the Steele dossier. I mean, it, 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 maybe the Hillary Clinton campaign didn't say get us a Russian uh, connection to do it, but they certainly used foreign uh, you know adversaries to put it together. And then the FBI and everybody went along with it. They more than went along with it. They they fostered it. Exactly, and the and the and the intelligence agencies. Uh, James Clapper, the head of the National Intelligence Agency, publicly stated uh, Donald Trump is a Russian intelligence asset. I mean, a dupe, a spy, a stooge. I, I mean, effectively a traitor, except that they weren't at war. I mean, this is just the most monstrous assertion ever made by a comparably uh, exalted official in the U.S. government. Uh, and now, on the Russian British side of it. Uh, it may well be that the Russian government knew something about it and assisted in it. That's quite possible. But the British government didn't. It happens that Steele himself is, is a British citizen. But there's not been a jot of evidence that the British government had any hand in any of this. They wouldn't touch right. a thing like that. Right. And now back to this uh, point on uh, Will and Noonan and the, the like. These are not un, uh, these are not terrible people. They're not no. uh, uh, they're not. They're they're smart people. They're serious people. They're uh, you know, they're, and they're yet, good and they're very patriotic. They they love their country and they're and they're good and they're nice people too. I mean, they're good people to have dinner with. Well, but and but they still can't let it go, right? They well, still can't it, it, see it's what the happened. Trump hate thing. It's illustrative yeah. of, of the fact that for some reason, and this would require a great deal of specialized analysis. Some people, no matter how intelligent and distinguished they are, simply flip their corks. A cuckoo bird flies out of their head when when the name of Trump comes up, and those two are in that category. I mean, Peggy Noonan is a wonderful person, a very judicious person, and she referred in the Wall Street Journal uh, about a year ago to to a little more than a year ago to uh, Trump being a uh, a tumor metastasizing in the Oval Office. I mean, that is an evil thing to say. You might say that about Hitler or Stalin or something, but not about any president in the history of the U.S. Yeah, it is amazing. All right. Well, Lord Black, thank you for making time to talk with us about your piece. Again, uh, uh, it is over at American Greatness, uh, captures uh, as well as anybody exactly where we are. So appreciate your time, sir. Always a pleasure, Ed.
Thank you. Thank you. Lord Conrad Black, everybody. I'll put it up on social media and let's take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Fascinating book that we're going to talk about right now. It's uh, published by Liver Right Publishers. It just came out a few weeks ago, and uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author is Joseph J. Ellis. The book is called The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783, that period in there, 10-year period. Uh, Welcome, sir, to the program. How are you? I'm very good and looking forward to a good conversation. Well, thank you. So first of all, I, I loved the positioning that, and I, I smiled, you know, nobody fought a war or fought uh, for the spirit of 1776 in 1776. And I think one of the things that you <laughs> capture is people called it the cause. And, uh, and, mm. and even in the, in your book, you were, you, people sort of projected onto the cause what they felt about it. Right. And, and what they, some people were pondering yeah. Liberty, but some people were just pondering money and some people were just pondering fighting. And, and, and I thought that was really important. How, uh, how, how did you come to see that? I think it's really important to have covered that. Well, I saw it because that's the word they used. First they used the term common cause, and then they shortened it to the cause the funny thing is, nobody called it the American Revolution at the time. The British called it right. the American Rebellion. And one of the reasons they didn't call it the American Revolution is that people didn't think of themselves as Americans. They thought of themselves as New Englanders or Virginians or Carolinians. Um, and they made a point of saying that they were not intending to stage a revolution. The, and they're they're, they're what we would call prudent revolutionaries, which just seems a contradiction in terms. But uh, you're right. The cause becomes a kind of verbal canopy within which different groups who don't really agree, um, sectional differences on the slavery issue, differences in the middle colonies and New England between New England's much more ready to go. And the middle colonies are much more, moderate and smooth stoned about it. Um, but the cause becomes the one thing they can agree on. Um, and the one thing is that they are going to resist British imperial policy or what they call tyranny um, and come to the aid of Massachusetts that's being occupied by the British army. Um, so the cause serves a lot of purposes. It's sort of like the Constitution becomes later. Its very success depends upon its ambiguity. Right. Right. And so, and again, we're talking with uh, Joseph J. Ellis, and many people have heard one of your more popular books, and it's uh, in, a, in a trilogy with this one is Founding Brothers. People, uh, that that became right. a huge seller. I know many people, Joseph uh, Ellis, is, if you're famous, that's one book that everybody seemed to know, and it was really amazing. And this is, this, by the way, this book is the is the uh, third, uh, a final of a trilogy on this. But back to this point on the cause and the Constitution. So now we're 200, and, 200 plus years later. Um, there is a sort of knitting together now. We could talk about whether it's <laughs> tearing apart a little bit, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, uh, okay, everybody's bought into almost, like, let's call it the American dream, as you said, the Constitution or this. And isn't that, isn't that sort of what a nation is? I mean, isn't that at the, not, not the only thing a nation is, but a nation is somehow yeah. you, you can buy into it, even if it's, I'm buying in for this and you're buying in for that, but you're knitted together. 
Um, yeah, but pretty soon you figure out quickly that you don't agree about everything. And um, right. I think that the first sentence in the most famous speech in American history, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, is historically incorrect. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Uh, no, they didn't. Uh, they brought forth a union of 13 separate colonies, provisionally united when the war and and stay together as long as that was going on. And even that, uh, they didn't, they, you know, the, the, the government had a very difficult time raising money to support the army and, and get recruits. Uh, and, but at the end of it, they were going to go their separate ways, uh, which is what they proceeded to do at the end of the war. And, um, mm. and they don't end up a nation. They end up a confederation of sovereign states which doesn't resemble the Constitution so much as what later on the Confederacy will say it wants to be in 1860. Right. Well, and I, and I meant to that's ask the you... I'm, the uh, uh, subtitle is, and, and it's discontents. They're not... They don't, we, we, the Constitution is like what one historian called a roof without walls. That is... We create a national government before we're really a nation, um, and um, right. and it's it's difficult for people to comprehend that now. But that uh, the real achievement of the revolutionary generation is to create that kind of national government um, in a way that uh, allows over time uh, people to come together. I mean, I think from a from an eagle's point of view, for for example. Women's rights, if you read the Declaration, human rights is an expanded thing. And Abigail Adams, for example, writes to John in April of 17, uh, what, 1776, uh, I guess. And um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, remember the, la the ladies' letter that there's real implications for women's rights and the women's right to vote. But that neither Abigail nor anybody else realize, thinks that that should be imposed now that that it's right. going to take a long time for that to happen it needs to seep out slowly so it's kind of an evolutionary revolution not the kind of revolution that you're going to see in france or in russia later on it's not it doesn't make the stat that the definition of revolution really uh for in, in the in the minds of a lot of political scientists but i think that's the reason it succeeded Right. Um, we're, we're, again, we're talking with uh, Joseph J. Ellis. His book is uh, entitled "The Cause." Anywhere you buy, you buy books, you'll find it now. It's, uh, and uh, as he said, the, sub, uh, the subtitle is "The American uh, Revolution and Its Discontents." Um, one more uh, uh, question along those lines: um, At that period, if when the war is over, everybody goes their own way, and as you say, it's a confederation, and the Constitution becomes the sort of uh, the the the, I don't know, miraculous, uh, whatever the phrase you'd use to say, knit us together. Um, it did so because the Confederation wasn't working, right? I mean, well, there was a sense that, that everybody went correct. back to their own thing, but you, you needed to get together. I mean, that was part of the... Re yeah, it, 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 it forced was economically... Them. That's right. We were running a $60,000 debt, which back then was a lot of money. And um, <laughs> right. the, the different states were, in effect, imposing duties on each other, then there was Shays' right. Rebellion, which was, and so that, yes, it it, it didn't work well, but uh, at all. And Washington, Hamilton, Franklin, 
all thought that the ultimate meaning of the cause was American nationhood. But that wasn't what most ordinary Americans thought. Most ordinary mm -hmm. Americans were born, lived out their lives, and died within a three-day horse ride. They didn't think mm -hmm. nationally. They thought locally. And it took almost a coup d'etat to turn that around um, in the Constitutional Convention. And too many historians over the years have viewed the revolution through the lens of the Constitution and see, saying, ah, the revolution is a, is a movement to create a, this great American nation. It wasn't. It, they didn't think that's what they were doing. And, and it is it, over the course of the war, Washington and his, uh, his colleagues in the army did think that. And that's the reason why when you get to the Constitutional Convention, over half the delegates are former officers in the Continental Army who, who saw uh. the problems of that, that, that the, the splintered character of the American states were creating during the war. We could have won the war in a year or two if they had drawn out all the resources they needed. We could have fielded an army of eighty to 100,000, but we'd never get more than ten to 12,000. Um, and and they thought that that protracted war was almost lost um, because we didn't have the, the support from the respective states. So in recovering, uh, again, we're talking with uh, Joseph J. Ellis. His book is called The Cause, uh, and it's uh, available everywhere books are sold. In recovering an understanding, historical understanding, that all these discontents worked together, or, or, or fought together, they, they had enough of a common cause uh, to stick together for the fight, and then later, on top of that, comes the Constitution. How do you, th how do you think, as a, a historian now, about the moment we're in, where a lot of people will say, well, you know, if you don't like it, you go where you want to be. You know, you self-select to X county and I'll self-select to my county and we'll build our little worlds. Well, it, it's never going to work for states, right? We're long past as an economic unit that that works. But there, there is a enough discontent. Forget about the uh, 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 any mm -hmm. put aside the fringe, the fringe characters uh, of the discontent and just say there's people that just disagree about a worldview. And they say, so how does the does the Constitution is that the is that the, the 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 roof without walls that holds it together still? Um, that's a good question. I mean, historians are really great at predicting the past. Uh, that's we're really <laughs> omniscient in that. But, but we don't. Yeah. We're no better than anybody else at predicting the future. But we are going through a a, a difficult moment in our history. I I think it's 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 as close to uh, the Civil War as you can get in terms of real divisions uh, among and between uh, different segments of the society and um it's a, it's going to be a real uh, a real test here and um and i think the lesson to learn from the revolution is that we do need to come together in crises and um and to vest the government with powers to bring us together to i know that it's controversial to have mandated um vaccines and things of that sort but that um uh, the lesson I draw from my work on the revolution is now's the time for, for us to uh, attempt to reach some level of bipartisanship, and um, that's going to be really hard. But uh, over the next year or two, as we move to the, 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 bipart the, the elections in 222, we'll find out whether we are, in fact, capable of doing it.
Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Joseph J. Ellis, uh, great Pulitzer Prize winner, a best-selling author. The, the, his newest book is The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783. Uh, thanks for writing the book and spending some time with us, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care now and be safe. Uh, thanks very much. We will uh, take a quick break, everybody, and be right back. I'll put all this up on social media, too. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Mrs. Schlafly was a courageous and articulate voice for traditional values and common sense for more than 70 years. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Many of the statistics feminists quote all the time are simply false. You may have heard that women receive only 10% of the world's income, but own less than 1% of the world's property. That's a ridiculously false statement, and it was invented by someone on a gender committee at the United Nations, with no data to back it up. American women alone earn 5% of the world's income. In various African countries, places that aren't exactly hotspots of women's rights, women own between 10 and 50% of the land. Another popular myth is that a third of the women in the U.S. who go to emergency rooms are there because of domestic violence. That statement is based on a post on the CDC website from several years ago, but the numbers were based only on women who visited emergency rooms for violence-related injuries. About a quarter to a third of those women were attacked by their partner, but when you consider domestic violence victims against all the women visiting emergency rooms, it's less than half of 1%. Now, that's too many, but domestic violence is vastly less common than the feminists want us to believe. The claim that one in five college girls will be sexually assaulted is based on a hopelessly flawed study done on only two campuses. A large number of girls did not respond, probably because they know they were not victims. There was also a strange, broad definition of assault. Girls who said someone had tried to force a kiss on them and girls who said they'd had sex while drunk were counted as victims even if they did not see themselves that way. These are not harmless myths. They distort problems and create bad public policies. Worst of all, they teach women to view men as enemies. And that, of course, is the real goal of the feminists. Beware of any statistics about men that are provided by the feminists who really are out to overthrow the patriarchy. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For more than 50 years, Phyllis led the fight against the dead-end road of radical feminism. Today, with the rise of so many savvy young conservative women, new voices are emerging. You're invited to voice your opinion on what's really important to women at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. All right. Well, another busy show. 
let me set you up for this. Next week, uh, Thanksgiving week, just so you know, we will have our usual program uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday will be off for the holiday, and Friday we'll have a best of. So don't worry. The place to check is ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and you can get everything you need there and uh, follow up uh, on all our show segments and everything else. I do want to prepare as we get closer to uh, Thanksgiving uh, to say thank you. Uh, the folks at The Answer San Diego, uh, Steve Brodsky and his team are phenomenal, uh, especially, of course, Noah Dingley, our producer. But everybody over there does a great job keeping the show going and on track and out there and it makes a big difference it's a huge opportunity for me to have a voice and i just want to say thank you thank you to steve thank you to noah thank you to salem radio network and all the team there that does everything to keep things going so it's a special uh organization a special radio station and a great bunch of people so i'm very grateful so all right everybody listen have a, a great night we'll be back tomorrow there'll be a lot going on from rittenhouse to kamala harris uh, to everything else under the sun. And we'll cover it all right here on the Pro-America Report. I'm Ed Martin. This is the Pro-America Report, and we will talk to you tomorrow. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.